This is our second to last week uh, going through uh, this series on eschatology. And so we have come to Revelation 20. You can turn there. Uh, it's on page 1040, 1041 in your pew Bible. If you're using a pew Bible, we'll be looking at verses 11 through 15 of chapter 20 and 21, 8. Chapter 21, verse 8. This is God's holy and inerrant word, so let's give careful attention to it. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Chapter 21, verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Again, Father, we ask that you would give us ears to hear and Illumine our minds so that you can hear, we can hear exactly the things that you would have us to hear. Grow us. Magnify our Lord before us even now as we gaze into your word and into his face through your word. Amen. Today we live in a culture where the prevailing worldviews, that is the way one views the world, the lens by which we view and understand the world around us. The prevailing worldviews are all secular in their orientation. Among some of these worldviews or ideology, there is what's called relativism, which holds that there is no absolute truth. We can know no such thing. There is heathenism, which has as its chief end uh, <clears throat> the pursuit of maximum pleasure and the avoidance of any pain. Then there is pessimistic existentialism, which rejects uh, the centrality of the mind and, and the soul and centers itself and the, on the will and feelings, a person's feelings. Concerning this particular worldview, R.C. Sproul wrote, man, they say, or cert, man is a creature of passion. He feels strongly, he cares about life, he cries, he sings, he yearns, he curses. Notice all those things are true. Man cannot be understood simply by his intellectual uh, activity. It is his passion that makes him a man. He then says this, in former days when we wanted to know a person's view on a particular topic, we would pose a question like this, what do you think about that? Now the question is usually stated differently. What or how do you feel 
about that. There are all sorts of other worldviews that I could mention to you right now, but I'd just like to point out this one fact. All the prevailing worldviews in our culture today have one thing in common. They all assert there is no God. And if there is one, he cannot be known. And if he or she exists, he or she doesn't really care. I'm sad to say that many of us who profess to know Christ have fallen prey to these ideologies in one way or another, which are all held together by one common thread, the worldview known as secularism, which again has as its chief distinction, there is no God. Man, in essence, has become the final arbiter of his destiny, of his fate, and of his own existence. And you know what? When one looks around today, one can almost be tempted to believe this stuff that is touted all around us every day, all day. And why is that? Because it seems to be working for so many. They go around and they're happy. They look pleased. They have money. They drive nice cars. They have the best things in life. But are they happy? And is that a good thing? Is it? What I just alluded to, the prosperity of the wicked and their seeming happiness can best be summed up or articulated by briefly looking at what a man named Asaph shared with readers right in our Bible in Psalm 73. Asaph wrote, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Why do they want to talk about me like that? They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heaven, heavens and their tongues struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. That particular verse is saying that the other wicked folks around them gravitate to them and walk in their counsel in opposition to what Psalm 1 says, do not walk in the counsel of the godly. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault. And they say, listen to what they say, how can God know? How can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? This is what they're saying. And Asaph then, like some of us, was in a tizzy over what he had heard and seen where is God in the midst of this? How can the wicked prosper like this? How can they hold every influential position in our culture, in our society, and refuse to acknowledge that Romans 13 says they are God's ministers for good and to restrain evil? Where is justice? If you kept on reading Psalm 73, you would hear Asaph after contemplating these things say, but when I thought 
how to understand this. It seemed a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Brothers and sisters, that is what we have before us, a revelation, a revealing of the end of the wicked and of the entry of the righteous into their rest. Now, let's look closely at this passage, and let's do so on the three headings. The perfect judge, high and lifted up. The hearing of the wicked and the fate of the just and the death of death. So first, the perfect judge, high and lifted up. John, describing his vision, says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence, earth and sky fled away. This, brothers and sisters, is no ordinary throne. This is not an ordinary courtroom. This is the most authoritative seat that has ever or will ever exist. This is the throne that caused Isaiah's bones to melt within him and which caused him to exclaim, woe is me, I am undone. As one writer mentioned, this throne is called great, not only because of its size being greater than every other throne, particularly the ones mentioned in verse 20.4, where the elders are sitting, but also because of its significance, its majesty, and its authority. It is the throne of all thrones, highly exalted, as Philippians tells us that our Lord will be. And every knee and every tongue will bow before him, highly exalted. The whiteness of this throne symbolizes its purity, its absolute holiness, and justice. The verdict handed down from this throne will be totally just, for there is no waywardness to be found in this judge. This judge is perfect in all his ways. He knows all things. He sees all things. And therefore, he is able to act according to his very nature to perfectly render justice. And who is he? He who is seated on the throne is no other than Christ Jesus. Listen to Acts 17, verses 30 through 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. That includes us, because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. There is a man. Fully God, fully man, seated on the right hand at the right hand of the Father, entrusted with the fate of all men. The scriptures tell us that God the Father put in trust the fate, the judgment of all men into the hands of Jesus himself. Jesus himself said this in Matthew 25, verses 31 through 32. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, Then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people 
one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. It is our Lord sitting on his throne high and lifted up in all his glory. His reach is unlimited. His power is unmatched. This is revealed in the fact that the earth and and sky attempts to flee from his presence but find no place to hide. Now concerning that statement, there are two prevailing thoughts here. Now both, both can be applied here. First, this speaks of his uncreating the earth, that is destroying it. The earth will melt away, it says. The second thing is being, being communicated here or understood here, a principle, is that it's Christ's omnipotence and his omnipresence. Or as the psalmist says in, in Psalm 139, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for darkness is as light to you. No one can run. No one can hide from the arms of our Lord. Instead, we must all stand before this judgment seat. This leads to our second heading, the hearing of the wicked and the fate of the just. John said, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Verse 15 goes on to say, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The great, powerful, and omnipresent one will bring every soul that has ever existed before him. His power is such that nothing can keep them from coming before him. Great and small will appear, the rich and the poor, the high socioeconomic person and the low socioeconomic person. I think about that story of Lazarus and the rich man. All will be bought before him, every single person will be bought before Jesus Christ. Again, Philippians tell us every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He'll be high and lifted up. He'll be judging rightfully and righteously, great and small. The sea, death, and Hades cannot shield or hold them. They will be placed before him And they, you, me, will be clothed with a body fit for our destiny. As 1 Corinthians 15, 53 tells us, 
For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. They will be bought before Christ. We will be bought before Christ. And the books will be opened, John says. The unnamed books and the book of life. In Matthew, Jesus says everything, everything that was done in secret will be revealed. Everything that was hidden will be known. And the criteria to be met, the criteria by which those who do not profess Christ, everyone for that matter, will be judged, is the perfection of a holy God up against that which you've done. If you're not in Christ and the finished work of Christ is not what's yours, if you're indeed in him, then maybe you don't have nothing. Definitely you don't have nothing to worry about if you're in him, per se. But John say, listen to what John says here. They were judged according to what they had done. Here's the problem with that. If you are in here and you are trying to, to merit, to earn your way before God, if you're looking forward to this day and you just say, you know what? I'll be okay. I'm doing okay. You know what? I don't, I don't lie. I don't steal. I don't do all sorts of stuff like that, right? Here's the problem with that. The Bible itself, Romans 3, 10, tells us there's none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3, 23 says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Isaiah, who went before the Lord, living a righteous life and yet still felt the weight of his sin when he came into the presence of a holy God, said, each of us has become like something unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all wither like a leaf, and our iniquities carry us away like the wind. In short, there is no hope whatsoever outside of Christ. Outside of Christ, we are or will be among those described in verse 21, verse 8, suffering the same indicated fate. It says, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, I'm already disqualified in all those three of those things, I've been those things, okay? As for murderers, the sexually moral, sorcerers, idolaters, I've turned on the NBA a lot more than open my Bible so God can, you know, ding me right there and on so many more things and all of us and all liars, all liars. So an infinitely holy God, even what people want to claim to be a little white lie, is punishable by what? The wages of sin is what? Death. There is no hope whatsoever outside of the righteousness the blood of Christ that was shed on our behalf. Their portion, it says, will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Add the works of our fallen human nature found in Galatians 5, 1 Corinthians 6, and various other places in scriptures. Add the fact that we were born in sin, scripture tells us, and one quickly realizes that standing before a thrice holy God 
counting on your own merit is beyond foolish. No, I say to you, cast yourself upon the rock of our salvation. Beg upon his mercy, lest that rock falls upon you. Now concerning those who are in Christ. Again, I mentioned the fact that there, oh, maybe I did not mention the fact that there are theologians, there are people who I esteem highly in terms of their commentaries that say that this is only the wicked that are here. And there's others that say, no, every single person is here. And when I tell you that they're esteemed individuals, believe me when I tell you that, okay? Irregardless of that situation, whether you believe that this is everyone or you believe this is just the wicked, and by, by the way, the, most, the people who mostly believe that would be dispensationalists and, and things in that area of that nature, okay? But here is what Beaky, Joel Beaky, who last year, uh, not this year, but last year was the main speaker at Twin Lakes Conference and did an incredibly awesome job. Here's what he says concerning uh, those of us who call the name of Christ, who profess the name of Christ. He says, we will all be there. Understanding this should motivate us. Christians will not escape the scrutiny of God. The Bible says that we will all be called to account at the great white throne. The sins of believers will be recalled in that day. However, it will only be done in the context of God's amazing grace to his own glory. We will not be condemned because Christ is our Savior. Nevertheless, we will be there. That ought to wake us up as Christians. We can't sit back comfortably and say, well, I'm a Christian. This coming day of judgment has nothing to do with me. That's not true, he says, Joel Beakey says. Others say we should be motivated by the reality of realizing that there are differences in rewards, that you do in fact earn rewards. You know, there's that principle that the 20% does the work of the 80% and that will be rewarded. And so those are thoughts that are out there. But the reality of the situation, again, we know that scripture says that those who are in Christ will never die a second time. They will not experience the second death. They are in Christ. And when the book is opened, what's seen in there is Christ and the work that he's done on our behalf so that our name is there. And by the way, for those who think that this has to be a physical book, here now we have to think about the fact that God knows all things. He's omniscient. So there's no need to have a physical book per se. He knows all things. When the whole host of everyone is before him, he already knows and can say exactly every single detail of every single thing that's occurred in their life perfectly. So he knows. Now I take great comfort in knowing that God's mercy has spared me from the sure condemnation, and I'm sure you do also, that will come to those who reject Christ. And I beg of you, if you have not accepted Christ, that again you call on him even now. But I take great comfort in knowing 
that I am his and he is mine. But you know what else I take comfort in? Our last point, the death of death. As I've already mentioned, Scripture says that it's appointed once for us to die, and then the judgment. But you know, the things that come along with dying are also bad. I mean, you know, you can sit, I'm, I'm at that point now where I can sit around with other folks that my age and a little bit older and talk about hurt back and hurt feet and, and bald head and nose dripping because I ain't got no cold, but my nose still dripping. You're like, what going on here, right? These sort of things that are attached to this dying thing, okay? Adam and Eve didn't die right there and then. God said, in the day you eat, you'll surely die. But, and they lived to be 900 and something years. So, ain't no, I guess they might have been okay. But I could imagine after 900 years, when they looked at each other compared to when they knew each other, like, man, Eve, if we had only not sinned, you know? And so we go through all those things that are associated with death. Not only are we going to die, but we're dying in experiencing the first death. But all thanks to God, we're not going to experience any second death. Death will be thrown into the lake of fire. Sorrow will be thrown. All the things that are associated with it will go there. Man, if, you, if, if a person has this vision of these things... They walk around with a joy that passes all understanding because they know that to pass from this life to the next is to go into an environment, to leave the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. And then when we get clothed with our new body and we're in front of this God, we will be there with bodies that are like awesome. I'll be able to dunk again. Oh, you do know there's going to be basketball in heaven, right? <laughs> No more suffering, death, and all the maladies associated with it. It'll all be cast into the lake of fire, never to threaten us again, never to lurk in the shadows. The old enemy who uh, has been undefeated, had an undefeated reign on this side of life, on this earth, will be utterly defeated and have no part in our existence Instead of walking in the shadow of death, we'll be running in the presence of Christ. I know some of you maybe used to run track and now you look at yourself and you can't run from your bedroom to your living room. You'll be able to run faster than that. Jesus went through a, a, a door. Didn't he go through the door where the, the disciples were? I mean, he went right through it and we'll have a body like him, it says. I mean, the things that we are going to experience, those of us who profess the name of Christ... It's beyond glorious. It's beyond glorious. How can we not love a God that's doing this and done that for us? Oh, you know, I, I get excited sometimes. Make me want to jump like I'm a Pentecostal again. But I'm going to calm down. Okay? That old enemy has nothing on us. And so I say as the psalmist or the songwriter said, as the song, he said, what more can he say than to you he had said? To you who for refuge to Jesus has fled. You know, I, I always say about the folks that come to night church that they are the real sold out ones. You know, if they were a rapture, it would be us, you know. And so 
I, I feel kind of confident that a lot of folks that are in here, you never know who the sheep and the goat are, but I feel kind of confident that you are experiencing the same thing that I'm experiencing in terms of the joy of knowing our Lord and the reality of what's here and what's set before us. So what you've heard here tonight is not a maybe. It's not a might be. It's as sure as the breath that you're taking right now. Again, the Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die, but after this, the judgment. If you're in Christ, walk in the comfort of knowing that there is now no condemnation to those of us who are in Christ. But hold fast to the tension of hoping that everyone you know your family members, those in your sphere of influence will be saved. Hold fast to that tension. And let us ask God to use us to that end. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you again for that which we've heard this evening. We thank you for the words that you've spoken here, the promises that we find here concerning us. Uh, we do not revel in the thought of anyone being condemned or anyone uh, going to hell. But these are your words, and those who reject you will surely suffer this fate. And so I ask if there's any among us even now, Lord God, who are rejecting you, who are questioning you, I ask that you would have mercy upon them. Grab hold of their hearts the way you did mine. Reveal and open their eyes the way you did me. It's not because I'm smart, intelligent, or anything, but it's by your grace. It's by your mercies, those mercies that are renewed each and every day. So would you grab hold of that person even now? Anyone who might hear me on video or anything to that nature, grab hold of them, Lord. Jesus, the day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord to the glory of the Father. Our desire is not that we should wait until that day to declare your goodness, but that you would bless us with a zeal to walk in a manner that pleases you right here, right now. Not as a means of earning that which we are incapable of earning on our own, but as an expression of our gratitude and love for you. Holy Spirit, you take great joy in revealing our Lord to those that are his. Would you do that for us this evening? Create in us a clean heart and renew a right spirit within us. Spirits in heart that revere our Lord and are earnest to share his message with those around us. Would you do all these things to the praise of your glory? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.